This is episode 65 with registered dietitian, certified diabetes educator, and published author in the Journal of Human Nutrition and Dietetics, Ms. Nicola Ludlam-Rain. We are back with another episode of the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and today we're talking about a lot. My guest is Nicola Ludlam Rain, and we're going to chat about calories, coconut water, diet myths, diabetes and running, the keto diet, detoxes, and multivitamins. Nick is well known in the UK because she's a strong voice against diet perfectionism and for the enjoyment of your food. She's a UK specialist registered dietitian. She graduated from Lubarrow University with a first-class honors degree in sport and exercise science, Leeds Metropolitan University with a postgraduate diploma in dietetics. She also has a master's in health science, is a certified diabetes educator, and a published author in the Journal of Human Nutrition and Dietetics. But that's not all, folks. Her blog, nicksnutrition.com, was voted as the UK's best health blog in 2015 and came highly commended for the food and drink category. Nick was voted Blogger of the Year for the Health and Fitness category in the Bloggers Lounge Blog Awards in 2014, and her blog was shortlisted for the Cosmo Blog Awards in 2013, 14, and 15 in the Best Food Blog category. She also came up runner-up for the Nutrition Writer or Broadcaster of the Year Award and the Nutrition and Health Live Conference in 2013 and was voted one of the top six health and fitness bloggers in 2015 by Collective Edge. Wow. (laughs) I wish I was done, but I'm not. Nick is also on TV all the time on BBC, ITV, and Channel 4 in Britain, helping folks make better lifestyle and diet choices through behavior change and guilt-free eating. And today, I'm finally excited to have the opportunity to speak with Nick about her philosophy, how she views many of the more divisive issues in the world of nutrition, and her advice on fueling and eating to be the best runner you can be. Now, if you're interested in this stuff, if you're interested in learning more about fueling, nutrition, diet, weight loss, how to eat for better running performance, you can get even more Q&A with registered dietitians. In fact, we have two bonus podcast episodes that you can download if you go to strengthrunning.com slash nutrition. They were recorded with my friend Ann Moni. She's another dietitian and a marathoner about refueling after hard workouts, how to refuel without gaining weight, balancing running with over snacking and a lot more. These are the questions that we put together from a really big survey of strength running readers. They're a lot more common than you think, so I think you're really going to love it. Now, if you want it, head on over to strengthrunning.com nutrition, and I'll send you both of those Q&A bonus episodes. All right, without any more delay, please enjoy my conversation with Nick ludlam Rain. Nick, hello from across the pond. Thank you for making some time to chat despite our seven-hour time difference. No, thank you very much for having me on. Well, first, uh, I think I have to congratulate you on your pregnancy. You must be thrilled. Is, is this your first child on the way? Thank you very much. Yes, it is. Yeah, so I'm 17 weeks tomorrow. And yeah, I just just heard the heartbeat earlier today. So yeah, it's all going well. Oh, that's so that's so exciting. I have three children. So you're in for a world of excitement. Let me just say that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I don't know if I want three, but maybe two. (laughs) 
I don't I don't think I wanted three until I had three. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll see. If it's one plus twins, then you can't send one back. Yeah, that's the thing. There's, there's no refunds. <laughs> so I, I'm really excited to to talk with you today uh, because you're clearly really passionate about this area with all of the education, the certifications, and all the training you've gotten over the years. So mm-hmm. I, I'd love to know right off the bat, what first got you into diet and exercise science? So when I was growing up, like as a teenager, I was always interested in sport and when I was first going to go to uni when I was 18, I didn't really think about my end job. I just knew that I lo- I was really passionate about how the body works. And so naturally, I loved um, PE. And so I did sports science at Loughborough. And it was in my second year that I went to see a nutrition advisor. And at the time, I was really interested in the power of food. And I was suffering, you know, with with bad skin, as you do, and I used to always cut out magazine articles, so I was really interested in how can I improve my skin. So she suggested that I go shadow a dietitian, and I loved what they did, and I thought, I can do that. So I then went on to the postgraduate diploma, and I qualified um, 10 years ago, almost, um, and my passion was really, like, in weight management So after about three years, I then specialized in bariatric surgery, which is weight loss surgery and diabetes, which is basically diabetes and weight loss. And I just find it really interesting. I I just love it. I love working with people. Yeah. And I'm sure that you're able to see a lot of physical transformations and and even psychological transformations from your work with um, a lot of folks with weight loss and diabetes. So that's just really exciting. And uh, I, I like that you noted that you uh, recognize the power of food to impact your life really young in your life. And, you know, you went on to study. And I'd love to ask you after, you know, all the different uh, degrees and certifications that you've gotten, are you still convinced that food has this power to transform your life? I, I definitely think so. But I mean, I think the one transformation is that I now have a much better relationship with food, knowing the ins and outs, because I know that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, I know that, you know, if you have some chocolate, um, it's not going to cause acne. Um, so it's about moderation. And I think I'm, what I'm really passionate is about focusing on what people should be having more of, because if you have more of the, you know, nutrient dense foods, then the things that are lacking in nutrients, we can still have them, but you'll have them less often because you're filling up on the high fiber foods. So definitely, you know, things like um, omega-3, your oily fish, your fruits and vegetables, you can definitely see it, you know, in someone's skin and, and their energy levels when they start eating better. Absolutely. And I find it very interesting that once you really became an expert in uh, diet, nutrition, weight loss, you actually became less rigid with your approach to yeah. to diet. And, and, you know, that there's such a strong parallel there with running. The more and more I learn about running, the more and more I recognize that it's the consistent habits over a long period of time that are really important. It's not the the one day off where you weren't scheduled to take a day off that that your body barely knows the difference and it seems like it's the same thing you know if if you have a candy bar then you know if if that's a regular habit of yours then okay that that might be problematic but if it's just something that happens every once in a while then it's really no big deal and your body really doesn't know the difference and and i love that there's such a strong parallel there 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it's about consistency and it's what you do the majority of the time, the most often. And the little, the little things like really don't matter, as you say. And actually, when it comes to, you know, things like chocolate and sweets, you know, it's soul food. And when it comes to having a rest day for running, then I thought that's really beneficial to your body, you know, because your body needs rest, your body needs soul foods and, and relaxation with friends. So health is more than just like food and exercise it's about the your social well-being as well yeah and if the pursuit of perfection is your goal then you're never really going to reach that goal because i think perfection is impossible and it's not really the goal we should be looking for anyway um and so i i always tell runners so when it comes to a training plan that one might follow for a race i always tell runners look this is a roadmap to your final destination you can take a detour and still get to your final destination and it seems like the same thing is true with your diet and nutrition approach as well yeah, exactly. And I think perfection is all about um, perception. It's about who's doing it and what is perfect, you know, to you might be perfect is going to be a, someone else's different perfect. So yeah, the, there is no perfect. There's just a right way for you. Um, and there is no one right way. There's many routes to your to your end goal. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that approach. Now, uh, let me ask you this, Nick, you know, you have so many different uh, experiences, a ton of different education background in this area. And I'd like to know, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions about diet or nutrition that you wish would just finally go the way of the dinosaurs, that you just would never want to see another article, video, or piece of media about that <laughs> misconception? So I would probably get rid of the whole, like, lose half a stone in seven days or the latest, like, fad diet because this promotes the notion that you have to be either all or nothing, that you're either good with your diet or bad with your diet. Um, you know, you're either bad on a weekend and then starting on Monday. And the, the truth is that, that there is no right and wrong uh, when it comes to diet. Um, the best diet is the one that you can stick to. And in my opinion, it's about balance, which means not cutting out the foods that you love and enjoying what you eat every single day. So, yeah, I wish that fad diets, um, really res overly restrictive, unnecessary diets would die. <laughs> how do you define a fad diet? What What is a fad diet and how might a general consumer like me, you know, I don't have any uh, nutrition credentials. How would I identify a fad diet? So, um a fad diet is um, a diet that has good foods and bad foods, so basically an allowed list and a not allowed list. And then it usually has attached to it some major claims, like you'll lose seven pounds, half a stone in a week, or you will feel amazing if you follow this diet plan um, for 10 days. So it's the claims, and then it's the good list and the bad list. As soon as you start getting a list of foods, unless you have a diagnosed allergy or intolerance, there is no need to cut out foods, especially when it comes to weight loss, because it's, it's the calories that are king. Um, and it's the food quality that helps you to feel healthy and satisfied. But yeah, there shouldn't be any good food or generic good food or bad food list. That makes it seem like almost any diet can be a fad diet. So the paleo diet, vegetarianism, veganism, you know, almost anything that is popular out kind of in the diet industry today could be considered a fad diet. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I suppose it's anything with a label or something that makes you want to follow a cult um, and especially one that there's loads in England that want to sell you a load of supplements along alongside it. Um, you know, a, a healthy, for example, the Mediterranean diet, there's no, you know, no supplements come attached to it. Um, it's not a start or stop. It's not an all or nothing. It's just have more of these foods and have less of these foods as opposed to you know paleo you know only eat fruit and vegetables and no grains because there's no reason if you're not intolerant to grains why you can't have oats which are a great source of soluble fiber and great for your cholesterol so yeah it, all all fad diets yeah this really reminds me of um you know any diet that proclaims that it's the healthiest option for you but then you have to supplement so for example veganism um you know, you you have to supplement if you're eating a 100% vegan diet. And the claim that it's the healthiest diet for you, while at the same time requiring supplementation so that you don't die, I've always chuckled a little bit at. That just seems a little ironic to me. And yeah. I'll, I'll give a little plug to uh, Matt Fitzgerald, no relation to me, but he wrote a great book called Diet Cults that kind of goes into uh, a lot of th uh, these topics and, you know, the kind of weird relationship a lot of people have with food. So uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I think everyone should check it out. It's really good. Yeah. And I think like something that I, I just thought of then, it's it's a diet which promotes it to you without knowing you, without knowing your medical background. And although you might be following a vegetarian diet, let's say because of, of ethical reasons or, or environmental reasons, if say you're a young teenage girl and you know, you're busy running, actually having a lack of red meat and meat and fish in your diet could be very detrimental um, to your, your, your growth. So yeah, I think it's diets that say, follow me, follow me without knowing who you are. You know, I will never forget when I got my USA track and field coaching certification, the instructor who was talking a lot about the lifestyle issues uh, concerning performance. So, you know, sleep, stress, hydration, nutrition, those kinds of things. You know, we were talking about diet and and he said, look, I'm not going to tell you how to eat. If you have ethical considerations about your yeah. diet, then that's fine. I will just observe that the best runners in the world are not vegans and a majority, a vast, vast majority eat uh, meat and they're not vegetarians. So he, he just left it there. And, and, and that's something that I think I, I always remembered when, you know, you think about performance, runners want to run fast, they want to stay healthy, they want to accomplish new distances. And that requires a lot of energy and proper nutrition so that you're getting all of the, you know, vitamins and minerals you need and all the different things that kind of make you run. So uh, I, I think that's an interesting side note from the world of running. Yeah, I think that's a great statement. And also, I think I think you should avoid labeling yourself because just because, for example, you may want to follow a meat free diet, a vegetarian diet. Let's say if you're a woman and then you fall pregnant and all of a sudden you have meat cravings, you're, you're almost, you're, you're made to feel bad about having meat. So I think definitely avoid labels. You know, you're just eating more of one food, less of another at that particular time point. And then if something changes in your lifestyle, then you can adapt your diet accordingly. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying be flexible. And, and I think that's what I try to get runners to think about when it comes to their running. You have to be flexible. If you have a workout scheduled for one day and you're sick, 
let's just put it off. Let's let's do something else that is going to help you get healthy and not just dig yourself into a hole physically wise. And and I think you have to be that way with your diet and nutrition too, because at different times during your life, you're going to have different needs. You know, and and a really strong example is when a woman gets pregnant. And I know, you know, when my wife got pregnant, her eating habits definitely changed, and particularly when she was breastfeeding too. So you know, those are considerations that you have to consider if you really want to optimize your diet and try to be as healthy as you can be. It can't be this strict approach that you follow all the time, no matter what. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, I want to talk about something a little bit different. You recently said that you promote being calorie aware rather than being a calorie counter. I'd love to learn more about that. Yeah, so I think calorie counting can sometimes be too much for people. So it can either be too time consuming or even too confusing. And the truth is that the calories that are staged on packets can be up to around 20% out. And even then, when we eat food, we may or may not extract all of the calories from it. So that depends on your gut bacteria and what type of food it is. For example, we know that you don't absorb all the calories in walnuts and sweet corn. So if you're calorie aware, that means that you're not necessarily calorie counting. However, you do know that there's more calories in a Mars bar in comparison to an apple. So it's about filling up on the low energy dense foods and having the higher calorie, more energy dense foods less often. So yeah, for example, if you're going out and you're ordering a pizza or you're buying a pizza, have a look at the calories on the back. And if one's 200 calories or less, go for that one. It doesn't mean that you need to calorie count, but you showed a calorie awareness. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, I had very brief periods in my life where I counted calories for like a day at a time just because I was interested. And I certainly made a lot of guesstimations um, because, you know, not everything is labeled properly uh, or labeled at all. You know, things like uh, things where you're not having a standard serving of something. And more than actually wanting to know the exact number of calories, I wanted to know a ballpark. And I just was curious. I just wanted to know, am I eating 2,500 calories a day, 4,000, 5,000? I honestly had no idea. And at the time, I was running a lot. And so, you know, for me, it was just interesting to see how much I needed. And then, you know, anyone who has high calorie needs, so maybe you're training for a marathon, maybe you're, you know, a more muscular guy, and, you know, you just have those high calorie needs, then, you know, all those percentages that are on the back of nutrition labels, those are based on a a 2000 calorie diet. And you probably have way higher needs if you're, you know, a muscular guy training for a marathon, if you're uh, a a breastfeeding woman, for example, you probably have much higher calorie needs. So I think being aware of those calories, but then also understanding when you might need more or less, and when those numbers aren't 100% accurate, I think is a really valuable skill set to have. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, tracking periodically for some people may be really useful. For example, if you're an athlete and you want to hit your carbs or you want to hit your protein, if you're a strength athlete. Um, and let's say if someone is trying to lose weight, if they want to track their calories for a week, that's fine. Because in my opinion, that's a tool to becoming more calorie aware. Isn't You don't need to calorie count though for the rest of your life because you, you pick things up. But yeah, I definitely say there's a time and a place. 
You know, I love that you said counting calories is a tool because that is something I say all the time about running and different workouts or training approaches and strategies. Um, you know, a, a really good example is barefoot running. A lot of people are like, should I do barefoot running? Is this going to be helpful for me? And my answer is always, well, it's a tool to accomplish a certain job. Just like, you know, you're not going to run barefoot every day or every time you go running. Um, you know, just like a long run is a training tool. Uh, a squat or deadlift is a training tool to help you accomplish a certain objective. And that's really refreshing to hear you say that because, you know, you can go out running and count your cadence. That doesn't mean you're going to count your cadence every single minute of every single run, nor should you be counting your calories every single day of every day of your life. You know, let's just use it when we need to so that we can get a general idea of where we're at and then, you know, go from there. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. Now, I want to ask your opinion on something. I've talked to a lot of registered dietitians, you know, people who are on TV all the time, just like yourself, people who consult with professional sports teams here in the United States, like the NBA and Major League Baseball, um, even Nancy Clark, who is probably one of the most more well-known dietitians here in the States. I think she has the number one best-selling sports nutrition book of all time, and there's this common theme. Every single RD I talk to is pretty adamant against calorie counting. And I just wondered, why is that reason? And, and why do people still think or still promote the idea that you have to score your food, weigh your food, track your calories, and otherwise engage in this minutia of nutrition that I think not only is excessive and not necessary, but it just takes some of the fun away from eating. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I mean, perhaps some people might think it's an easy way of of controlling your weight um, and reaching your end goal. But the reality is, as you said, you know, it's time consuming. It's not always accurate. It can lead to an obsession over macros and calories without thinking about the quality of what you're eating. Um, you know, you can lose weight by eating 800 calories of chocolate a day if you're calorie counting. However, we both know that, you know, you're not going to feel very good and you won't be very healthy. So uh, although calories are king, you definitely don't need to count them. And also, I think if people are calorie counting every day, you're moving away from intuitive eating and eating intuitively is what we were born with as babies and as children. So it's impossible to calorie count and intuitively eat. So it's about honoring your hunger um, and listening to when your body's full as opposed to when, you know, my fitness pal says that, that you've eaten enough. <laughs> yeah. Listen to your body, not your fitness pal. I like that. Yeah. Um, now you actually just mentioned, um, uh, intuitive eating. And intuitive eating, uh, I, I don't think I've asked you about that, but this is another thing that is mentioned or promoted by virtually every registered dietitian I've spoken with. It, can, can you just briefly go over what that is and how someone could get into that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think intuitive eating is often banded about quite loosely as in, oh, you know, just intuitively eat. And um, all children are naturally intuitive eaters, you know, on babies, they'll turn their heads when they're full. Um, and we are born with so if we're hungry, food looks appetizing. And then as you'll notice, as you're eating a meal, it, it becomes less appetizing. Um, and all of a sudden, that first taste that, you know, tasted amazing, for example, if you have some chocolate cake, by the 20th bite, 
it's not so amazing anymore. Um, Laura Thomas, PhD, who's a registered nutritionist in the UK, she's got a really good post on Instagram. So she talks about, so there's 10 principles. So they are rejecting the diet mentality, honoring your hunger, challenging the food police. So that's the good foods and bad foods. Make peace with food, respect your fullness, discover the satisfaction factor, honor your feelings without using food, respect your body, exercise to feel the difference and honor your health. So honor your health and dental nutrition is is like the final principle, but there are so many principles that come before it. And the problem is, I think, with diet culture, diet culture kind of like removes intuitive eating. Um, and people who've done years and years of yo-yo dieting, all these fad diets, they find it really hard to get back to basics. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I think there's a book, Intuitive Eating, that started the whole movement. I'll put that yeah. in the in the show notes as well. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit, Nick. Now, you are a certified diabetes educator. So I wanted to ask about fueling for running. And pretty much all of that fuel is just simple carbohydrate. So how do you advise endurance runners with diabetes to balance their need for carbohydrate on the one hand for performance uh, as fuel, also with their medical needs and not wanting to spike their blood sugar too high? How, how do you work on that issue with your clients? Well, I think the main thing is that it's a purely individual thing. So it depends on have they got type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes are they taking a medication, for example, like metformin that doesn't cause a hypo, which is low blood glucose levels? Or are they taking something like glimepiride or glyclozide, which may drop the levels? Or are they taking insulin? So it's all about, I think, working with your specialist dietitian and, and nurse who knows your history so that you can come up with a bit of a plan and you can say, right, when you when you have breakfast, for example, if it's a porridge oats, you normally have X amount of insulin or X amount of medications. Actually, if you're going for a run that day, you might need less or you might not need any at all. For example, um, everyone's going to be different though. And I suppose, I mean, the night before a race, you're still going to be wanting to, you know, have have a decent carb load meal so that your glycogen stores are up and then still follow the basic principles of eating at least two to four hours before your event. And then during the race, I suppose it's still going to be the same as having simple carbs. However, I mean, you may want to invest in um, a sensor. So we have one in the UK called Libra, where you wear a sensor and you don't have to prick your finger to test your blood glucose levels. You just scan it. So I think definitely having word with your diabetes provider and coming up with a plan. What do you do on race day with your meds? Um, you need some hypo treatment on you, of course. So you need um, glucose tablets, which or maybe some like Lucasade or some gels that are easy to take. So some like low fiber stuff on you to prevent hypos or to treat them if you experience one during a run. It seems like this is another issue where tracking and measuring and, and really knowing the numbers is beneficial at the very beginning so that you get an understanding of how your body reacts to both the carbohydrate intake, and also the mitigating effect of running when you have, you know, uh, higher blood sugar levels. And then once you get that general understanding, you can be a little bit more intuitive about it. Is that a fair kind of look at, yeah. at how you're describing this? Definitely. It's definitely trial and error to begin with, because everyone's different. Um, if, for example, you, t you inject insulin, everyone's going to be 
um, have different insulin sensitivities depending on the time of day, depending on how big you are. So it's definitely trial and error during practice. And then, yeah, you'll eventually, you'll, you'll get to know what feels right. However, I would never advise, you know, going on a run without, you know, a meter and some, some glucose tabs on you just for safety, you know, keep them in a, in a little bag on you. So, so actually bringing some glucose with you for every run, just in case you think that's a good idea. If you're taking insulin or a medication such as glomepride or glyclozide, that has the potential to lower your blood glucose levels. If you diet controlled, you're not at risk of a hypo. Okay. Now, what about um, going extremely low carb or even you know ketogenic? Is that an option for folks with diabetes or, or even folks without diabetes? I think so. if you don't tolerate carbs very well, for example, if you do have diabetes, then some people can thrive off a low carb diet. Um, the majority of people, though, without diabetes can tolerate carbs just fine. And actually having carbohydrates can enhance performance. There are a few individuals, though, that I know of, you know, elite athletes who do say that they thrive on a high fat, low carb diet. Um, I think they are few and far between. Um, but the only way to find out if you can adapt to fat is is by trying it out. Um, the problem is, though, that when you're switching to a very low carb diet, you can experience um, headaches. And if you're following a true keto diet, it, the problem is that it can be knocked off at any time you have the smallest amount of carbohydrate. So this kind of throws socializing out the window. It throws alcohol out the window, which you can probably tolerate in small amounts, even if you're training for a big event. Um, you know, if 95% of the time, you know, you're on point. So I think it's a very difficult diet to follow and probably unnecessary, unnecessary for the majority of people. I think the behavioral psychology aspect of a diet as extreme as the ketogenic diet is important to consider because you're right. It's really hard to adhere to that kind of a diet because it is so extreme. And so if you go over a friend's house, family members for, for any kind of a meal, you might be out of yeah. luck and uh, you'll only be eating a small part of that meal. Um, now, what do you think about the the time frame that it takes to adapt to a carb-free diet? Because I know you said, you know, you might get headaches. There is that transition period. How long does that generally last? I think, I mean, it depends on the type of person. Usually you start to experience headaches, you know, like one to, one to three days in. Uh, and it might last a, a good few days, depending on how well you adapt. Um, but definitely, like before weight loss surgery, most of my patients have to go on a low-carb diet. I mean, it's only 100 grams a day. It's not that low. Um, and most of them report headaches. Um, so, yeah, we, we call it like like it's like a like low-carb brain fog. Um, and sometimes, you know, people's immune systems can be down. So, yeah, it's definitely not for everyone. Some people might experience constipation. It's also very expensive. Um, or it can be very expensive to follow, especially if you've got high calorie needs. That's another good point, too, that it, it makes preparing your own food a little bit more of a challenge logistically, and you you might end up paying a little bit more for that as well. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's. I, I want your th I want your thoughts on a bunch of random issues. So I have some quick questions for you. Of course, the answers don't need to be too quick, but. Um, now, a lot of runners are drinking coconut water to hydrate. What is your view on this drink as a dietitian? So I'll have to send you the link. So I was on um, national TV talking about this. I'll send you the, the clip. 
basically it's not worth the hype and if you're a runner it doesn't contain the correct ratios of potassium sodium and carbs and that's why if you're exercising for more than an hour I would stick to a specially designed sports drink, you know, isotonic sports drink. Or if you're exercising for less than an hour, then all you need is water, you know, and maybe have a banana um, after you finish running for the potassium, um, you know, or, or a glass of, you know, chocolate milk. But you definitely don't need coconut water. But what I said on TV was basically coconut water is a healthier alternative to a high sugar fizzy drink, but it's definitely not recommended as a sports drink. Yeah, and it seems like it's because of that ratio of electrolytes and sugar and and just overall calories in the drink. Now, is it not good for uh, performance when you're exercising, or is it not good for recovery after exercising, or both? Yeah, it is for both. So I suppose it's to do with the the osmolarity and to help your absorption. So it's not I mean, it might be slightly better than water, but it's nowhere near as good as these specially designed sports drinks. Um, you know, a lot of money is pumped into them. So, you know, even if you go for the low calorie ones, you know that, that the electrolyte balance is such that it'll optimize your water absorption. So I would definitely give them a miss. And they're probably the same price as the sports drinks anyway. Yeah, the Gatorade, Powerade, all those drinks are not really uh, they're not sexy drinks. You know, you're, you're not going to yeah. turn any heads at the end of that 5k race when you're drinking a Gatorade, but you're going to be getting better hydration, I think from it. Yeah, definitely. So do you think it's really bad to eat after a certain time at night? What's the science behind this? Because I know that I know my position on this question, but I'm curious about yours. I'm always debating my grandmother about this and I'd <laughs> love to have an RD to back up my position. <laughs> So, I mean, I would say, I think it's a myth that you can't eat after a certain time, um, just because our lives are so different. So if, if, for example, you tell someone, well, you've got to stop eating at eight o'clock, yet they're late home from work and they come in at half eight, are you going to leave that, you know, that guy starving? Um, The one thing that I will say, though, that it's best to avoid eating a large meal within two hours of bedtime, just to prevent indigestion. So it's not problematic, you know, having your evening meal later if you're going to bed later or if you are going to bed straight away, just keep it light. I suppose the only real problem with eating late at night is that you're awake for longer. Often you're tired because you need to go to bed. So you're then snacking and grazing on foods that are there just to keep you awake and keep you going. And those snacky foods are going to be your crisps, your chocolates, your your low nutrient dense foods, basically. Right. And it seems like as long as you're eating, you know, predominantly healthy food, it doesn't really matter when you're eating that during the day, as long as, you know, it's it's relatively spaced out, you know, you're, maybe you're not eating 2000 or 2500 calories in one sitting. Um, yeah. And you're not staying up too late to do it. Does Does that seem fair? Yeah, definitely. And I think when it comes to, for example, protein absorption, the research shows that Ideally, we should be spacing it out. So at least 20 to 30 grams with each meal, so three times a day, and then having 30 to 40 grams before bed of about, you know, of casein. Um, so if your goal is muscle strength growth or you're, in, you're you know, a strength athlete, then definitely spacing out protein because the body isn't able to, you know, metabolize a lot of it all at once. It metabolizes it much better when it's spread out. And the same is true for nutrients as well. Um, if you're taking, for example, let's say if you're prescribed two calcium tablets that we often do with our patients, if they take them both at the same time, 
they won't absorb nearly as much as if they split them up and take them at two different times of the day. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, that's a good point. Nick, let's talk about detoxes. There's <laughs> there's so many crazy detoxes out there, uh, juice cleanses and things like that. In your view, what is the goal of a detox? Do they work? And, and what are you actually detoxing from? So I think most of the magazines, they promote detoxes as like a miracle cleanse and they're spouted as being necessary. But the honest truth is that your body detoxes on a daily basis. So Every time you go to the toilet, that is a detox. Um, your liver and kidneys work 24 seven, uh, breaking down any toxins that you've taken in. You know, there's, there's pollutants um, everywhere. Even alcohol is a poison, so your liver breaks down that. So you definitely do not need to go on a special you know, detox diet because your liver and kidneys work irrespective. I think if you did want to go on a healthy detox, so to speak, I would just say, to cut down on alcohol, um, you know, maybe reduce your salt intake, um, reduce your added sugar intake, and up your fruits, vegetables, oily fish, whole grains. So just switch the balance to healthy eating. But yeah, you don't need to go on a detox. Detoxes are temporary and they're unnecessary. So it sounds like just a healthy diet is all the detox that you need. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Um, now, what about someone who is eating a healthy diet? Do you think that person needs a daily multivitamin? Because th this one is honestly something that I've struggled with over the years because I've seen so many conflicting viewpoints. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to know your thoughts. But from my point of view, I say that taking a multivitamin, it's a bit like a dietary top up and insurance policy. So if say one day you haven't eaten your five a day or you haven't eaten three portions of dairy or or fortified um, dairy alternatives, then perhaps a multivitamin is a nice little backup. It also depends on the thing who you are. If, for example, you live in England, all of us Brits should be taking 10 micrograms of vitamin D. So to, to combine the two, I say to my patients, well, why don't you take multivitamin? They're really cheap make sure it has 10 micrograms of vitamin D. And then you're also covering for women of childbearing age, the 400 micrograms of folic acid that we need, because we know that most pregnancies are unplanned or most women don't even know that they're pregnant. You know, they might find out three months in, during which time they haven't been taking folic acid. So if you are taking a multivitamin with those two things in, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. And as long as you've got nothing on your medical record, you know, that means that you can't tolerate certain things in that multivitamin, then it shouldn't do any harm. But you could argue if you live in a very sunny climate, you're not going to get pregnant, you're eating your five a day, really healthy diet, then no, you don't need them. You're just peeing extra nutrients down the down the toilet, basically. Yeah, <laughs> really expensive pee is is usually the product of taking a multivitamin. But no, I like that approach. And it's once again, a flexible approach that if you are someone who might need those extra, uh, you know, nutrients, someone who's not getting enough sunlight, someone who's not eating as well as they could be, uh, if you're pregnant, then those are specific cases where, you know, you might need that insurance policy. I like that. I think that, uh, I think I might need that insurance policy. So you've, you've pushed me in the right direction, Nick. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I think the ones to avoid are those like, you know, the high dose ones that just focus on like your B vitamins because B vitamins are water soluble. So most of them you pee down. So if you just get a general multivitamin that contains 100% recommended nutrient intakes, yeah, it's just a bit of a, an insurance policy, a little top up. 
Great. Nick, there we have it. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today. This was really interesting uh, as someone who's not as well-versed in these nutrition topics as you are. So before we leave, you are you are talking to an audience of performance-minded runners. We want to get faster. We want to run more. Do you have any other advice or a words of wisdom that you'd like to impart on this crowd of runners? I'd probably say um, be your own diet detective. So do a food diary for a week with symptoms, basically how you feel. If you go for a run, how did that run feel? So that then you can look back and you think, well, how many hours before my run did I eat? Just to work out what's right for your body. You know, do you require low fiber or high fiber before a run? And I think that's the best thing, basically. And just to try things out in practice, um, get a plan nailed and never try anything new on race day. I love that advice. the The coach really, the coach here really appreciates the try nothing new on race day. That is great advice. <laughs> All right, Nick. If folks want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you out on the internet webs? Yeah, so um, you can go to my blog, which is nicksnutrition.com, um, N-I-C-S Nutrition, or I'm on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. I'm just at nicksnutrition. You can follow me on there. Great. Well, I will link all those up in the show notes so that folks can easily find them. That'll be on the Strength Running blog. And Nick, one more time, thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, this is Jason. One more thing before you leave today. We have more conversations with highly trained dietitians that you can download for free at strengthrunning.com nutrition. Head on over to that address, enter your email, and I'll send you a series of emails that include those two audio seminars, but also give you a downloadable registered dietitian approved shopping list, the top nutrition mistakes to avoid, and more. We've gotten reviews literally from around the world from runners who have really loved this material. And I just want to share a quick note that I got from Chris recently. She told me, there's lots of good advice and I've started taking action on it already. I love the recipes and the concepts introduced. You guys did a great job in putting it all together. What I like the most is the focus on whole, real foods. I like that a lot. Thank you, Chris. I love that focus as well. I think any diet that doesn't focus on whole, real foods is not a diet that you should waste your time on. So if you want to see this for yourself, go to strengthrunning.com nutrition, and we'll hook you up with our best stuff. All right, everyone. Thank you as always for listening, and we'll be in touch very soon. Mm-hmm.